0: I just want to open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 24. If you don't have uh, a Bible, we will put it up on the screen for you, so uh, no, no worries there. Let me ask you a question as we get started here. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Right? I had somebody at 8 o'clock do my sermon as soon as I asked that question, which really irritated me, but that's okay. Um. I just want that question, that really irritating question to linger in your mind, because in the text that we're looking at today in chapter 24, Paul, to me, seems like he's in one of those unbearable situations described as waiting. I can't do anything but just wait. Um, no place you can go. There's nothing you need to do. No change that seems to be coming in the horizon. Just kind of there. You're just kind of kind of stuck. I, uh, my confession, and if you know me, you know this is already true. I don't wait very well. In my flesh, I'm a very impatient guy. Wanna, this would be hell on earth, just to describe it for you. Going shopping with my wife... When she's shopping for clothes, it doesn't happen very often, but you know those chairs, like prison chairs, they put next to the changing rooms that men just sit in there and they pump something into the air conditioning that makes you just kind of lose your mind. you got to take a nap after you go shop. That is living hell to me. That version of what, what are we doing? How come it takes so long? Um, so just a confession. I, I know you already know this, but waiting, stranded between the place that you are and the place you want to be, isn't a probability for you, Christian. It's inevitable. Everybody has to wait for God. Everybody has to wait for these things that God is doing in our circumstances to reveal themselves. Perhaps for you, stranded in a place called unemployment, job searching. (laughs) Possibly for you, you're stranded between doctor's appointments and chemo treatments, or maybe it's I've lost a loved one, and there's loneliness, you're just, you're just stuck, there's nothing you can really do, there, there's no tasks to fix it, you're just kind of feeling stranded. Well, if that's you, and I think it's all of us from time to time, then we're not alone. In fact, in the scriptures, I, I dare you to pick up any biblical character, pick the biggest, the brightest, pick whoever they are, and you're going to find most of them, if not all of them, have moments of waiting. I just went through Genesis and Exodus and grabbed the ones you'd be familiar with, but Noah waited for rain, right? Long time for rain. Abraham and Sarah waited for a child. Joseph waited in prison. Israel waited to be delivered. Moses waited to lead. And that's just the first 30 chapters. Everybody waits. So our, our character in this story in chapter 24 is Paul and he's waiting. Can't go forward, can't go back, just have to endure it. So that's the question that I kind of want ringing in your ears. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Before we answer that and a couple other questions, let's, let's look at the story, get caught up to speed. We'll read a little bit of the text and pray and, and make our observations. Remember where we are if you've been around for the Acts study, specifically last couple of weeks. Remember... Um, Paul has been, uh, was found, chapter 21, in the temple, praying, minding his business, doing what he would do in his worship of the Lord. And some Jews from Asia show up and accuse him of stirring up strife and and uh, defiling the temple. And so their response was to beat him within an inch of his life. He's rescued, arrested, questioned multiple times. And last week we looked at this, gov- not this governor, but this leader, Claudius Lyssa, uh, and he hears the charges that the Sanhedrin Jewish leaders have against Paul and he hears Paul's explanation of his innocence and he hears that multiple times and he finds out also that there's this plot to kill Paul. There's a a a group of men, an assassination squad of 40 plus who've decided not to eat until they kill Paul. And so I think Claudius just wants to get rid of this problem and move it north up the leadership ladder. And so he sends Paul to Felix, the governor, and writes a letter that travels with Paul. And in the letter, he just simply says, you got to decide this. He's been accused, but just so you know, everything that I've gleaned from it is he's innocent. I find nothing there to, to charge him. And if you remember last week, we took some time to just kind of glean from that narrative of Paul's life, like what are things that are consistently true for believers? And, and we, we pointed out this reality that you can be doing the right things and, and still experience trouble as, as Paul is. There are going to be days that you regret, there's going to be days that you're afraid, but but take courage, right, church? Take courage because our God knows what he's doing, uh, he loves us, he is with us, Nothing will separate us from his love. And, and we left here just kind of hanging on to those those words, take courage. Today's story, we can learn some things too. And let me just tease up what we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn something about conviction and we're gonna learn something about waiting. Let's read the narrative. Start in, we're gonna back up to chapter 23 and pick it up at verse 33 so we get a running start at the story. So again, 23, 33, and we'll read into chapter 24. And when they had come... Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, they asked what province he was from. And when he he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, i.e. a lawyer named Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had Been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, This, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Okay, that's the butter up section. Verse 4, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man. Thus begins four accusations against Paul that we've heard over and over again. One is he calls him a plague, a spiritual cancer in essence, one who stirs up riots. Among all the Jews throughout all the world, an exaggeration, a lie. He is a ringleader. In other words, he is a uh, chief revolutionary. So for them to say he's a ringleader would perk up the ears of the Romans going, anybody who wants to have this insurrection, man, that's a, that's a serious problem. So they're levying charges against Paul that would make the Romans care more about getting rid of him. And then it goes on to say, and by the way, he's, he's the ringleader of this cult, a sect, a sect. Of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. In other words, there was no time for me to do what they accused me of and go ask everybody. There's no evidence. It's just not true. And then he goes on verse 13, Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, or the Christians, these people who follow the Nazarene, Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before, toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make the accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out when I was standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, or Christians, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. In other words, like uh, house arrest. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two, two circle that, two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let me just fast forward the first 12 verses of of chapter 25. So so Felix has has transitioned out, Festus has transitioned in, and and he is now gonna hear the case about, about Paul. The council, the Sanhedrin, comes to Festus and says, hey, can you do us a favor? Can you try him in Jerusalem? And he brings that before Paul, and Paul says, no, no, let's not do that. Um, I've appealed my case to Caesar and the conclusion for, for Festus after he sought counsel was, okay, if Caesar, who's you, who you've appealed to, then to Caesar, you will go. And the whole attempt, according to the narrative was that we get him to Jerusalem, we can kill him like we wanted to. So that's running in the background as, as they're having now this third, uh, plus trial over the very same things. Okay. Now, let's just stop. There's, there's so much in these narratives, and to be honest with you, it's so familiar that if we're not really careful, it'll just be past us. So let's stop and ask for God and his spirit to just really teach us, to hone in on a couple things and reform and refine his church. Let's pray. Lord God, I do ask right now for um, your kindness, that your Holy Spirit would come and take these words and apply it by conviction and encouragement to your church that we take the lessons that are obvious and apply them to our own lives. And that when it's all said and done, God, you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. After reading this chapter, which seems like we've read it already, you can see why when you pick up most commentaries on, on the book of Acts, most of them rush through the last six chapters because there's so much repetition in it, right? It feels like Groundhog's Day. I mean, Paul is still arrested. The accusers are still accusing. Their charges are still kind of there. We have new names of leaders. We got Claudius and Felix and Festus, but they're all having the same take on this thing. They're all trying to get it out of their hands. So what do you glean from this really repetitive story? I'm going to give you two things this morning, all right? One of them is is this, that ignoring conviction is absolutely deadly, super deadly. Most of what we're going to say comes from one paragraph in chapter 24, we're going to read just two verses again so I have some fresh context to make the point. But if you would read with me verse 24 and 25, and I'll, I'll see, uh, see where it goes. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the, for the present I think to, in order for us to really understand the weight and the power of this moment, we've got to take a look at this man named Felix, because he just looks like one of the many that we meet, and it's just kind of kind of, out of mind, out of sight for us to, to, to see another leader listen to the case against Paul. But there's something uniquely personal about this story. Felix was uh, the very first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become the governor of a Roman province. And you might ask the question, which is probably wise, how did that happen? Well, the same way things like this happen forever. He knew somebody, okay? Um, Felix, his brother, Paulus, grew up as a friend to Prince Claudius. And when Prince Claudius became Emperor Claudius, his brother said, hey, can you throw a bone to my brother, Felix? Felix. And so that's how he became in this position, this governor. But Felix was a a really not a nice man. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on on him, made this statement. During Felix's governorship, insurrections and anarchy dramatically increased throughout Palestine because of his brutality. Historians tell us that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings and described him as the master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Felix was an unscrupulous, greedy, brutal, scheming politician. <laughs> Does he live in two thousand seventeen? Okay, that's that's Felix. Drusilla, his wife, is interesting. Most historians say she was very young, 19 or 20, very beautiful. She was uh, his third wife. He was her second husband. She was the daughter of King Agrippa the First, and they came together, interestingly enough, through an illicit affair. Scandalous. Uh, that's how they joined up. Felix, spiritually speaking, was a total pagan. No interest, no interest in things of God. She is described in the text as a Jew, but but. Here's how you need to consider this. This is a woman who is described as a Jew who no longer has any interest in the things of God. No people like that? People who used to be? Well, that's who Drusilla is at this moment. But let's homogenize them together so that you can really relate to them in this story. The bottom line for these two is they both followed the, their passions and their feelings to the nth degree. Whatever feels right, whatever I want to do, I get to do I'm living for myself. I want to be happy. Right? They would be perfect representations of our culture. Go for it. Do, be, try, whatever. Because ultimately, if your joy and happiness is preeminent, it explains anything, any decision you would possibly make. And so just picture them, kind of that, that narrative of do whatever you want to do. And these people have enough power, enough resources to just fill it out. So that's who we're dealing with. This encounter, I, I believe, between Felix and Paul, beyond just being divine, happens, I think, out of curiosity on Felix's part. Because verse 22, I read it quickly, but you remember it says that he had a rather accurate knowledge of Christians, of the way. And my assumption is that Felix, he watched from a distance to get this accurate knowledge, and he was concluding some things, all right? Paul, what makes you tick? I watch how you talk to people. I watch how you give and how you work, and I watch how you love. In fact, I watch all the way the Christians treat each other differently. Why? What what gives? What's the motive? What's the angle? Where's the profit? You understand? Somebody with no spiritual sight will always see some kind of selfish reason for what they do. And so I just want to know, Paul, what's your angle? So for curiosity's sake, Felix sits down with Paul to ask these questions, and he gets an answer. He wasn't ready to hear Paul starts talking about faith alone in Christ Jesus. And I have to make some assumptions because we've got a lot of epistles that talk about Paul whenever he talks about Jesus. And my assumptions are about what Felix heard sounded something like this. Felix, I, I know you think this is about motive. Like there's some kind of profit or some kind of selfish reason in this. But this is not about that. This isn't about a philosophy. This is not just about one of the many possibilities of a thousand possibilities that exist in our world. This is about the exclusivity of Jesus, God come in the flesh. This is about the righteousness of God, his holy standard and expectation. This is about his willing sacrifice to fix the problem of sin. Listen, Felix, this is about the narrow way. There's so many other ways in the world. Everything's an option. Like, your way seems like an option, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. All the other ways are wide roads that lead to destruction. There's a narrow, small way called Jesus that leads to life. That's what it is, Felix. It probably sounded a lot like this. We're familiar with this. Uh, Felix probably wasn't. Felix, let me just tell you, man, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God, not even you. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who would believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. My bet is it sounded a lot like that. Felix, this is a story, man. There's no motive. There's no, there's no gain This is not just another version of your life. This is exclusivity of of Christ. Then, okay, beyond the theology, I think, that he brought in this discussion about faith in Christ Jesus, I think Paul takes this this thing to a very personal level. It says in the text that he reasoned with them about these categories of thought, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I think this got right down in his face at this point. I think for Paul, he was going after two people who all they knew in their whole life was do what's right because it feels right to you. Follow your passions. Two people who never understood, never even considered self-control and never thought about sin, never thought about God's judgment, never considered it. Sound familiar? Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Paul, in effect, was painting the clearest, most transparent picture of Felix's life he had ever heard and would ever hear up to this point. And he basically says to them, everything you are, Felix, everything you believe is wrong. And there is judgment to face. And the text tells us the response, pretty, pretty clear response. It says here that Felix was alarmed. The word means terrified. Terrified. Not just concerned, like, oh, that, that felt weird. Like scared. So... Right here, right at this moment, Felix is facing the biggest, in my opinion, biggest decision he'll ever make in his life. Will he hear the words of Paul? Will he hear the good news? Will he hear the gospel? Will he respond? The answer is pretty quick, no. And his his solution is sort of the world's solution, sometimes the church's solution to whatever God comes with his sharp elbows to tell us about our sin. Give me some space, man. Not right now. It's inconvenient. I need some room. One writer said it this way, and I think it's true. At that, very, at that very moment, a real sense that his soul died. He tapped out. Now, let me stop and make some points to us this morning. Um, there are two tragedies that are possible for everybody sitting in this room this morning, including myself. Again, as one author put it, two potential tragedies. The tragedy of never trembling, never ever being afraid of what God sees in us, you know, never being convicted, never, never seeing our heart for its real condition, never believing a Romans 3 narrative about my condition, that I'm not righteous, not even a little bit of me. I never seek after God. A person who never, ever trembles, that's problem, tragedy number one. Tragedy number two is ignoring it when it happens. If God somehow reveals to you that you are the needy one in the narrative of the good news, you're the sinner in need of salvation, you're the dead man needing life, if you don't see that or if you see it and go, well, not now. i got other things to do. I'm I'm really busy. That just got a little personal for me. That's the second tragedy. Let me just be more specific. Whenever God brings conviction and we put it off, and here's why it's very dangerous, because that conviction might not come again. For for Felix, he was a one and done kind of a guy as far as we know. From the narrative, he heard it and it was over. Remember, we we talked about narratives. If you want a, a quick way to work through a story in the scriptures, look for the things that are consistent about God and about us. What you see consistent about God here is that he's faithful to lean on us with his truth. And what happens to us when he leans on us with his truth is the thing called conviction. What also is always true about us is that we have a tendency to procrastinate, get busy, get distracted like Felix, give me some space, man. At one time, Felix heard it, clearly. At one time, he was afraid. At one time, he saw the problem. But he ran, he ran from the conviction. In fact, it's very interesting that we don't even have a gap between the sentences before he starts thinking about his preeminent issues again, where's the profit in it for me, I wanna meet with you, not, not so that you can relight that fire, I wanna meet with you because maybe you'll bribe me. So, church listen to me, we can't run from conviction. Can't run from it, the tragedy of shutting it off or being too distracted is too great. There's not a, a person here that doesn't have some things to learn or places to grow. And what we are called to do is be humble enough that when it comes, we receive it as the grace of God that it is. God's conviction is not meant to do us harm. Do you believe that? Okay, there's one more thing about this, truth about this conviction. Truths that we don't act on can actually harden our hearts. Eugene, not Eugene Peterson, but Kent Hughes says this about this truth. Whenever we come under conviction while hearing the truth, we must take immediate action or suffer spiritual loss. If the Spirit is prompting us to teach, we must quickly take first steps to do so. If he's moving us to give, we must do it. If he's prompting us some, to some ethical or social involvement, we must respond. One of the reasons some evangelical church have such a weak social and ethical witness is because they've ignored God's voice so long and they can no longer hear it. If God is speaking, we have to answer. Agreed? Okay, lesson number one, ignoring conviction is, is deadly. Here's lesson number two. And it is the answer to the first question I asked you when we started. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when God says, wait? What do you do? Just a reminder, Paul is in house arrest for two long years for being innocent. That's, that's pretty tough to deal with. And yet here you're stuck. Like you might be here, stuck. Stuck in a diffi- difficult relationship. Stuck in a difficult season. Stuck in a brutal thing you have to bear up under. You've asked for God to deliver. You've asked for something else. You want to move it down the road. You want to get out of the problem, but it doesn't change. The address is the same. And, and you feel stuck. Well, there's a, a negative way people respond to being stuck. That just creates more problems. We're so bad at waiting, and maybe this is only a personal confession, but I'll bet you join with me when I say it, is that when hardship comes, we run off to cope, don't we? We try to cope with things that could never, ever help. And you fill in the blank. People cope with all sorts of things, things that are legal, things that are illegal. You do whatever. You just cope, because I don't want to wait. And if i got to wait, then I'm going to be blurry in the, in the process. We quit. i got to wait. Well, then I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out of marriage. I'm tapping out of relationships. I'm tapping out of church. I'm tapping out of my confessions. I quit the whole thing. Or we have a tendency to be really determined when we have to wait. We try hyperactivity. We try work. We try pulling ourselves up by these fictitious spiritual bootstraps we think we have. And we try pushing God. God, fix it. Do it now. Like I'm going to make you. Like we have some kind of thought that we can make God move his timetable. God, do it. Well, here's what God's people do when there's nothing they can do. First one, be at peace. I want you to hear this one. I want you to hear this one because this should be two two things. Encourage you and convict you. Be at peace. Let me just suggest to you, the church doesn't have a great reputation with peace. It should, but it doesn't. Um, Every family has family traits, right? Beyond the physical, beyond the, the appearance of the eyes or the nose or the stature of the person. Every family has traits. For instance, if you came over to the Mont house this afternoon, if it goes like it has for the last you know, year or two, there'll be a bunch of people there and we'll tease each other. And sarcasm will be one sharp tool we use. Anybody have something like that? There'd be a personality to it. You know, Some people are shocked that we can you know, rough each other up like that. But we love each other. That's, that's part of the personality trait. Well, I want to just put on you that the number one personality trait of God's people, the family of God, is peace. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. Jesus said, I've told you these things about the future, about my super abundant provision, so that in me you might have Peace. Peace. Because of the world we currently find ourselves in, we get a ton of opportunity to demonstrate the family trait of peace, don't we? So let me just ask you a convicting question. How you doing? Turn on the news. Ah! Ah! You know, I, I, I don't know anybody like this, but let me just create a fictitious character. There are Christians out there who go, that's it, man. What God said. And suddenly there's this other narrative. This competing narrative. It's the world and its craziness and they're both very valuable, very powerful and I'm preaching both of those sermons all the time. And I'm just going to suggest to you that, that peace needs to be the church's response. When God, when God puts you in a situation that doesn't look like it's going to let up, is peace the supernatural conclusion? Listen, I think we need to be convicted. There's not a day that goes by God doesn't give us a lesson on. Do you really believe me? Do you really trust me? I know it's crazy. I know it's insane. I know they don't love. I know there's so much hatred. Do you trust me? Is peace what they see in you? Or you just act like another version of them? Just a different set of opinions. Okay. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Be at peace. Number two, excel at prayer. This is Paul again. Remember where Paul is in the the epistle of Ephesians. He's in prison. What's he doing? He's waiting. And this is what he says. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Excel at prayer. Prayer isn't like that thing church people do when we start stuff and when we stop stuff. Prayer is the essence of our relationship with our Father in heaven. Excel at prayer. Let me give you another one. Live in relationship. There is, uh, in the New Testament alone, some 50 references, mandates, commands to the one another's, this thing, our relationship to each other as Christians, Okay. Things like this you've heard before, love one another, be devoted to each other, be kind and compassionate to one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, confess one another, and this one, encourage one another. The Apostle Paul to the church in in Thessalonica, he is preaching and teaching about the day of the Lord when all hell will break loose and it will look like it's coming apart. And then he reminds the church, but God's in charge. He's got it. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. And then he says this in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage each other with that reality. You and I, in essence, truly really are each other's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. You are not created by God or recreated by his grace to live this thing called faith alone. If you're absolutely alone, then you're missing it. You belong in the body of Christ. You belong and should live in community. Let me give you the fourth thing, what you do when there's nothing you can do. Glorify God. Sounds obvious, right? So you Do not make the mistake of thinking that where God has you isn't where he wants you. Don't make the mistake of thinking this gap called waiting is a waste. Don't conclude that somehow God is sitting off somewhere at a beach while you're suffering in this position of waiting. Don't make the mistake of thinking right where you are is not right where he wants you. And where he wants you ultimately, and we know this, is in a situation where you can bring glory to God, right? In, in again, Paul's expression of this thought, he says, whatever you do, 1 Corinthians, whatever you do, and let me just think, I'm just, this is a little paraphrase. What's the most mundane thing people do? Whether you eat or whether you drink. Do it all to what? Glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. If you're an English major, you're going to hate this next sentence, but tough beans, um, I'm going to use it. Nothing is for nothing. Everything is for the glory of God. Nothing's wasted. Waiting's not wasted. Gaps aren't wasted. Suffering's not wasted. Disappointment's not wasted. Sickness isn't wasted. Loneliness isn't wasted. God uses all things. Now the question that we have is if I'm supposed to live for his glory, then that changes the focus of how I approach all those moments and those days, right? Those particular things. Let me give you one last one. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Chase after him in your waiting. Paul did that in the midst of prison. In Philippians 3, listen to this. Such a powerful and comforting truth. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death do not waste your waiting chase after chase after Jesus I believe this and I think it's true and I think some of you who've gone through it know this even better than I do when we're in situations where there's nothing that we can do. Sometimes the voice of the Father is more precise and more poignant and more powerful and more profound and more clear in those gaps when we're waiting than he is any other time. Do you believe that, church? If you're right now waiting, then these are your words. If if you haven't yet had to, then you should be writing furiously right now because it's coming. Don't forget, church, pursue them. Pursue them with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make sure that you focus on the glory of God in your relationships with one another, carry one another's burdens, and pray and live in peace. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this truth, these lessons about conviction and, and waiting well. I pray for anybody in this room who, um, who is struggling in the season of being where they don't want to be. I pray, God, that maybe they, today they'd be encouraged to, to see what you might be doing in the midst of it. But help us do it because we believe. Help us to do it well. Lord, when, it, when it's time for us to feel your conviction, your loving prodding, help us receive it as grace and respond the way you would have us respond. We pray for the power of Christ to do so and we pray it in his name, amen.